This week on Mindful Headlines, the story the entire world is watching, the war in Ukraine. This time, I speak with John Koenig, a professor at University of Washington who previously spent three decades of his career in the U.S. Foreign Service, including as U.S. Ambassador to Cyprus and as a political advisor to the NATO Joint Forces Command. In 2011, he received the Presidential Distinguished Service Award in recognition of the policy and leadership roles he played in Berlin, Germany and at U.S. NATO. He talks to me about the situation unfolding in Europe ahead of an emergency NATO summit being held this week. We'll discuss what a stalemate means and if a diplomatic solution is still possible in Ukraine. He'll also help all of us understand what to watch for in the coming days and weeks. John, thanks for being a part of the podcast. Well, thank you, Jessica. I'm happy to be here. We're going to be discussing the war that's happening in Ukraine. And just to get a lay of the land, can you tell our listeners the status of the war as you see it in this moment in time? Well, right now, we've seen the massive destruction that has occurred over the last four weeks. We're now four weeks in. And it seems as though we've arrived on the battlefield and in the cities of Ukraine at a kind of stalemate. Uh, the Russians have occupied certain areas and they've uh, even occupied a few cities, but they failed to take most of their key strategic objectives, including most importantly, the capital of Kiev, but also the second largest city in the east, uh, Kharkiv. So even though the pace of destruction is growing, unfortunately, the pace of the humanitarian tragedy is rising and getting worse, what we see is a uh, a kind of stalemate on the battlefield, maybe the end of at least this phase, or maybe the, the strongest phase of the Russian invasion. Um, at the same time, this humanitarian crisis has caused a lot of people to leave their homes. About 10 million Ukrainians is what uh, the official estimate is from the United Nations. Most of those are so-called internally displaced people. They've just moved from one place in Ukraine to another. But there are more than 3 million who have already sought refuge abroad as refugees, mostly in the frontline states of uh, NATO. Uh, Poland, Romania, for example, have taken in a lot of refugees. Many of the refugees have gone to Moldova, and all of these refugees uh, are generally moving onward further into Europe in order to find places where they can stay. But this is a massive problem. But an even greater humanitarian problem is the situation on the ground in Ukraine. Um, I, I, I think that is, is a huge tragedy. Um, people are being uh, not just killed, and uh, they're dying of sickness, of hunger, of, of thirst, of, of deprivation, of cold. It's a huge um, humanitarian crisis. And I, I should not leave out the international response, which has been very strong. Will you explain what it means to be in a stalemate? Because there are reports that the Ukrainians have gained some ground back that the Russians have taken, but then obviously there's plenty of Russian troops within Ukraine right now. And then there's also talks about other actors getting involved, perhaps Belarus, perhaps China in some way. And then of course, right now, President Biden making his way to Europe to of course rally NATO. And so just what does it mean to be in a stalemate right now? And what are the next steps getting out of that? Well, what it seems to mean on the ground uh, for this uh, conflict to be in a stalemate is that the 
positions of the two uh, sides, the armed forces of the two sides, are relatively fixed. So Russia is not making further advances into Kyiv, for example. They're not making further advances into Kharkiv. They are um, establishing stronger positions, bringing in more artillery, and uh, actually destroying these cities uh, in a greater, on a grander scale, more brutally. So that's a large part of this stalemate, unfortunately. Um, the other uh, element that you mentioned is that there have been some counterattacks by Ukrainian armed forces. Now, the Ukrainian armed forces have hugely outperformed people's expectations when this war began four weeks ago. They have shown themselves to be more resourceful, uh, more determined, uh, and uh, more effective than anyone imagined. So right now, there have been some small-scale but significant counterattacks in the area around Kyiv, and then also in the south, which is strategically very important for the Russian invasion and for Ukraine. Um, there's also another kind of resistance going on. Um, in the occupied cities, uh, the best known is Kherson. Um, there are people demonstrating against uh, the Russian occupation uh, very often, daily. This is weeks after the city was fully occupied, and it's at great risk to uh, these people. So that is another element of this stalemate. And um, finally, I think there is just the whole situation of the armed populace of Ukraine, something that I don't think Putin expected, and I don't know that anyone really expected, but uh, so many Ukrainians have taken up arms in order to defend, you know, not just their country, but uh, their cities and their neighborhoods. So this has also slowed down and in some cases helped to create the, the Russian advance and helped to create this, this stalemate. Um, what's going to happen next? Who else is going to come in? There is a chance that Belarus will become more involved. Belarus is already very, very involved uh, in supporting the Russian invasion. They have so far refused to send Belarusian units into Ukraine. If they did that, I'm not sure how much difference it would make in the terms of this uh, stalemate, but it would augment uh, Russian forces. Um, it would definitely signal that Belarus is even more subservient to Moscow than it has been up until now. Um, there are uh, there's talk of a lot of volunteers and mercenaries and everything. This is very much in the news. Uh, who are these people? For example, the Russians seem to be bringing in some uh, Chechnya uh, forces who support Russia. Um, they were involved in the very brutal suppression of the Chechnya uprising. Uh, and of course, people remember how the capital of Chechnya was was just leveled by by the Russians in the course of of dis, uh, putting down a separatist movement there. Um, there are others who are volunteering and perhaps in larger numbers. Um, it's hard to say uh, for the Ukrainians. Um, so that is um, those are the elements of a stalemate. I think mm -hmm. what is happening though internationally. Um, well, China, you mentioned. Yeah. Um, everybody's watching China closely. Uh, I think um, it's very hard to understand exactly where China is going to move. Maybe that's why people are following it so closely. It seems not to be fully committed to support for Russia, even though it has provided important diplomatic support. It'll probably provide some relief on sanctions uh, for Russia. Um, but this report that we saw some time ago from the United States that we believed that 
Russia had asked China for arms and other kinds of support for actual engagement in the conflict uh, in a way. Uh, it seems that that's not happening. It may not happen. And China is remaining a little aloof. Um, and then there's, of course, the West uh, and uh, led uh, quite effectively, I think, by President Biden. Uh, this has been a great opportunity for the United States to do one of the things that it does well uh, for uh, the democracies and communities of the West uh, is uh, to uh, lead uh, this group of countries. Um, and uh, that's the reason why it's so important that President Biden is traveling to this uh, summit, traveling to Brussels for, for especially the, the NATO summit, but also then on to Poland. And he's also having other meetings in Brussels. You've touched on a lot of topics that I do want to follow up on with you. Um, first, though, I want to because I want to talk to you about the NATO summit happening, China's involvement and sanctions. But before mm -hmm. we get into all those topics, I just want to ask you, what are the chances of a diplomatic solution to this conflict at this point? I think they're um, they're growing. I, I don't know how great they are, but I do believe right now they're growing. Um, and it's in part because of this stalemate. One of the keys to opening the door to a diplomatic solution to this conflict has been the resistance of the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian armed forces. If that had not occurred, then of course we wouldn't be talking about a diplomatic solution, we'd be talking about a Russian victory. So we're not going to have a Russian victory, it seems. We're going to have some kind of very, very painful compromise, difficult to reach, hopefully though reached before too long at the negotiating table. The natural place to begin would be a ceasefire, but those uh, ceasefires, even for purely humanitarian purposes, have not held very well. So I, I think any uh, process toward a diplomatic resolution is strong. Uh, it's important. I, I would just say one thing about this. I think Mariupol is a very interesting place to watch in the okay. context of a attempt uh, or the possibilities of a negotiated solution. Why? Uh, the city is militarily very significant. It's strategically located, but it, the situation there is also hopeless for the Ukrainians. So why are they holding out? I think it's because they look for a negotiated solution now. Um, if they were to surrender in uh, Mariupol as uh, Putin has demanded, they would be weakened at the negotiating table quite significantly. Um, so at the cost of additional human suffering in a way, but suffering on behalf of their country, they are holding out in my view, in order to press the case for a more even handed diplomatic solution than they might otherwise uh, obtain. Well, you mentioned all of that suffering and obviously a lot of people around the world thinking what can be done to end the human suffering that we're seeing in Ukraine. As we've talked about, President Biden in Europe as of uh, tonight, and he'll be there throughout the week, Brussels and in Warsaw. And um, will you explain to our listeners what we should be looking for in this NATO summit? I know you've done work with NATO, and so if you'll explain um, what to be watching for in these next few days. I've heard some reports of perhaps additional sanctions um, or how the um, NATO countries will band together. Yeah, I've been to quite a few NATO summits and uh, a whole lot of high-level NATO meetings. Um, so I think what you shouldn't be looking for really is dramatic uh, decisions made at the summit. Um, because 
I think we already know essentially what the decisions are going to be made. Everybody briefs the media ahead of time. So I think we basically know where things are going to end up in terms of official decisions. There will be uh, a decision, I believe, on some additional assistance to uh, the Ukrainian armed forces and this, or and or Ukraine more broadly. This could well be in an area that's been very much highlighted ahead of the summit. Um, the risk of chemical and biological weapons attacks, the use potentially of small nuclear devices, and then cyber attacks. So some greater assistance to Ukraine in order to prepare for these has already been sort of announced in advance of the summit. Uh, there'll also be, I think, some discussion about uh, how NATO should respond if such threats are made against uh, NATO itself. Uh, and we've also seen an announcement made by the Secretary General of NATO about the movement of four additional so-called battle groups, rather potent but uh, relatively small units, um, into uh, the frontline front NATO allies, which doubles the number of NATO battle groups deployed there. Um, so these things are important. I, I would look, though, uh, for what is reported from behind the scenes from people like you by journalists, because the main story is not really in the conclusions of the summit, which are usually released as a communique or a declaration, but what happens among these allies? How solid are they? We won't have an easy picture of that in the documents or the decisions, but you will hear about it in uh, the press coverage. And in the media coverage, if NATO remains as solid as it is and keeps moving forward, that's a very good thing. This has been an uh, important issue for President Biden and for the U.S. that we maintain NATO solidarity. NATO sort of operates with two drivers. One, especially when you come to large-scale, high-level meetings. One is U.S. leadership, and the other is the lowest common denominator because it's an organization that operates on the basis of consensus. So when those two things kind of work their way out, and I think that'll happen at this summit, uh, what you get is, is a success, not usually very dramatic, but one that reflects, I think, the, high, the priorities of, of the United States and the alliance. Right now, I think they're supporting Ukraine, avoiding escalation, and remaining united in the face of this threat. There are some reports that during the summit, they will pressure China's president and condemn him for not condemning the attacks in Russia. How does that work? What's your opinion on whether that's possible? It's, I would say, unlikely that they will condemn Xi Jinping, because some countries in NATO don't easily do such things, but they may very well criticize Xi Jinping um, and they may criticize China. I don't think this makes very much difference in all honesty. Um, NATO is a Euro-Atlantic organization. It is really um, most important in this space between North America and Russia, let's say. And uh, even though NATO has, NATO has begun to take on discussion of China, uh, it is not, I don't think, um, an organization uh, that China feels is particularly significant with regard to its approach. Um, in regards to sanctions, more sanctions on Russia, whether it's by the U.S., other NATO countries, etc., we saw that there were sanctions uh, during the invasion of Crimea eight years ago. Those were not effective. 
It seems to be a little bit more effective this time around as we've sanctioned a lot of Russian oligarchs, but how effective are they really? And um, is that a huge factor? I think it is a very huge factor as a demonstration of the resolve of, of the international community, since it is clear that um, the United States, for example, and NATO do not want to get directly involved in this conflict. And it does, uh, I think, both affect uh, Russian policymakers, including Putin and his circle, and it affects the capacity of Russia to sustain a long-term campaign, not just in Ukraine, but against uh, the West, if that's what he has in mind in general. Um, but the effectiveness of sanctions is spotty. It's often just as difficult to formulate a scheme whereby sanctions will be lifted and how you link lifting of sanctions to improve behavior and these kinds of things. And that will be, I think, the next job of the alliance right now, or, or this community of countries that is imposing sanctions on, on, uh, on Russia. The uh, right now, uh, we seem to be just interested in finding every sanction that we could apply and just sort of taking off the table those that would cause such intense pain for the countries participating in sanctions against Russia that we can't do it. So, uh, you know, we're just adding more and more names to the list of people who are sanctioned. That, I'm afraid, won't have much impact. The fact that we are uh, sanctioning certain members of the lower Soviet uh, um, sort of House of Representatives, the Duma, I think will make no difference. The um, uh, but uh, what does make a uh, difference over time is very carefully considered sanctions, how you, uh, how you intensify them at certain points on certain place, people and certain activities, and then how you plan to um, sort of ease them in the context of a diplomatic process. Because, um, you know, it may have been that Clausewitz who said that war is just diplomacy uh, by another means, but certainly sanctions are just diplomacy by another means. So you have got to have a diplomatic strategy with sanctions. And finally, it's worth mentioning that there are a lot of important countries that are not participating in sanctions. Um, India is perhaps the largest who we haven't mentioned up until now, but there are many, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Brazil. Um, so sanctions are really at this stage, even though they're being applied rigorously by the United States and its Western allies and allies in the Pacific, like Australia and Japan and South Korea, sanctions are basically a, a you know, West and the rest activity of a, of a certain group of countries, and they're not universal. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't be effective, but it means that um, we have to recognize that this is not complete isolation uh, of Russia, only isolation insofar as it's possible by using the mechanisms that are available to these countries, and there are many. Okay, and obviously the goal of sanctions and all that we're doing in the U.S. is to find some sort of diplomatic solution because we do not want to see a World War III. And that, of course, is the fear. We talked a little bit about the hope of a diplomatic solution, What's more likely, though, is perhaps something like a prolonged war in Ukraine, right, where uh -huh. the U.S. and NATO are backing an insurgency within Ukraine? I don't know if that is more likely. Okay. I, I would actually say a prolonged war. I mean, we're four weeks in, so we're in a we're early in a war, even though the destruction has been massive. Okay. So a, a war that lasts for let's say many more months, that is certainly highly possible. Um, and that could still end with a 
negotiated solution, and it could still end without an insurgency. You know, an insurgency only happens when Russia has occupied Ukraine. And it seems that Russia will not occupy Ukraine. So um, what we have is a war in Ukraine between two organized militaries. Um, and uh, what our efforts are aimed at is, first of all, supporting one side, the side that's defending itself against an unprovoked attack, but also uh, arranging for a negotiated solution to end that war. And uh, that, I think, is more likely than, than an insurgency over a long period of time. And it's also much less damaging than an insurgency over a long period of time. So um, I'm hoping, and I don't think it's just hope speaking here, I expect that uh, because Russia will not succeed in occupying much of Ukraine, including probably Kyiv and almost certainly the West, um, that what we are going to be dealing with is, is not really an insurgency. And so then um, in response to what you've just said, does the US and NATO, do we step in at any point? Because it's been very clear, as you've mentioned from President Biden, that we have no interest in participating in this war by supplying troops, by actually taking military action within Ukraine or even doing a no-fly zone, which would be akin to um, you know, participating in the war. So when do we perhaps have to step in as we're watching the destruction of this country and attacks on civilians? That is an excellent question. I think that um, one kind of scenario in which we would step in has been the one that we already touched upon a little bit, use of weapons of mass destruction in Ukraine. Um, I I'm not sure that we would uh, step in even under those circumstances because we've also talked about other kinds of responses like additional sanctions. Um, I think one of our main goals in, in this situation where this earth war is ongoing in Ukraine is containing it. So um, I, and I think that's a very, very worthy goal as, as much as we worry about the huge human cost of this war, which is enormous and growing, containing it is likely to contain the overall human cost uh, that would be just horrific if this were to spread into a general European war, let alone a nuclear war. So um, I think that is a very high priority. So how do we navigate in this narrow space? That is the challenge, uh, and I think we've done pretty well. It's true that we have not stopped the killing and destruction that's going on in Ukraine. Ukrainians are helping to push back against that. They're doing all of that work for us in a way. Um, we're helping them, uh, but I think it'll take something it's more likely that we will step in if there's a violation of, um, if there's an attack against NATO countries, if Article 5 is invoked, then if it's hard for me to really be confident that any scenario inside Ukraine would prompt uh, direct NATO engagement or direct American involvement in that war. And this is a moral problem. I, I think everyone recognizes that. Um, but um, I hate to be trite, but uh, you know, foreign and security affairs are not a morality play. And we do have our own people, our own country, and other countries to worry about. 
When you speak to your students, how do you talk to them about that moral dilemma? Because as you said, I think a lot of people are watching the news coverage of what's happening in Ukraine and thinking to themselves, how can we help, whether it is within our local communities or on a broader scale? Well, I think there are many ways people can help, and many people are stepping forward to help, uh, especially with providing mainly for, for funds to uh, uh, humanitarian relief efforts, but also, I think, because of the uh, very large Ukrainian community in uh, Washington state, I think will be welcoming a lot of Ukrainian refugees, and that's a big help. But um, I think uh, even though my students, uh, and I would say young people generally who I engage with, recognize this moral dilemma, they also um, are not, um, what, they're not ideologically inclined. They They don't see this as a war between good and evil, as a war between democracy and authoritarianism. They see this as a war and they, they hate war. So um, the, uh, I think they, they are more inclined to be open to this kind of balancing of, of considerations. It's sort of what, the opposite of what you'd expect. Young people are supposed to be fired with idealism and older people are supposed to be cynical and uh, sort of balancing. I don't think that's the case now. I think young people, because of their experience growing up, are more open to balancing and um, sort of looking uh, at both sides. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you wanna share that you think is really important to note as we watch what's happening as we keep tabs on the situation here in the news and we go forward? I think um, I would like to put in a little plug for how uh, successfully, in my view, uh, President Biden and the United States have navigated this extremely difficult situation. They're coming under a lot of pressure from uh, various sides, but mainly people who kind of understandably say, we just have to do more, even if the risk is is greater. Um, they, I think, have been able to explain quite well uh, why we are doing what we're doing, clearly not maybe to everyone's satisfaction, but uh, we need to bear in mind that as horrible as the destruction uh, and uh, human tragedy of Ukraine is, a wider war would be vastly more destructive and it wouldn't protect Ukraine. So as much as they may admire and be moved by uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine, they do need to recognize that his interests are a little different from ours, that he wants us to get more and more deeply involved there and directly involved there if he can. His proposals are in some cases um, so beautifully designed to bring us directly into the war that you wonder if that is not his main objective. The, um, and he does always put out this moral dilemma that we confront. Um, but I think we need to uh, realize that there is a morality on, on the other side as well. Restraint and uh, avoiding escalation in a wider war is a very moral position and that there's morality on both sides. That's why it's a dilemma. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. I know you spent about three decades in the Foreign Service. In all of your time in the Foreign Service, did you ever think we'd be this close to speaking about a World War III? 
No, and I was uh, around during the Cold War, and uh, we actually were sitting there. You know, I worked in East Berlin, and there the the Cold War was right there in front of you. The 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 gargantuan sort of presence of this military confrontation. Um, I've been a little surprised that people have sometimes said now that this um, nuclear brinksmanship or the kind of the kind of nonchalant way in which um, Putin is talking about sort of nuclear threats are typical of the Cold War. They were not. This this is a very unusual situation. There were one or two instances in the during the Cold War when this arose over a long period of time when when we were really much more focused on this danger. This is a complete shock. I, I never expected to see this. Thank you so much for this conversation and discussion. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Jessica. Once again, that was John Koenig, a former political advisor to the NATO Joint Forces Command and U.S. Ambassador. He also teaches at the University of Washington. There are more links and resources about the war in our show notes. I'm Jessica Janner Castro. You've been listening to the Mindful Headlines podcast. Make sure to subscribe for more episodes and please share with your family and friends. I'll see you next time.